Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Uh, morning. It's an honor to be able to be here in Harvest and be preaching God's Word. And wow, uh, what a story we're going to look at this morning. Now, I titled the story uh, or the sermon, Treasure Hunting. Uh, and the story we're going to look at is in Genesis 29 uh, to Ch- Genesis 30. And it's really um, about Jacob's marriage. It has everything in it. It has love, hate, deception, envy, mean in-laws, uh, romance, rejection. It's just full of drama. And if you're here this morning and you think the Bible is boring and irrelevant, well, I think this passage today proves you wrong. So let us read the passage and then let me pray. So Genesis 29, and we're starting in verse 16. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I might go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is it that you have done to me? Why Did I not serve with, uh, with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the weak of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel uh, to his wife, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And then she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. This is God's word. Let me pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Father, right now we just ask for your grace to be with us. Father, I ask for you to give me grace to speak your uh, your word boldly and clearly. And Father, I pray for grace for all of us to hear your word, uh, so that your word would uh, transform our minds, convict our hearts, and change our lives. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Indian arranged marriage. Um, this is the, the, the picture that you see right now on, on the screen. It's a Netflix show. And um, I was sitting at home and Netflixing. Um, and I was looking through what to watch. Um, 
and I think it was a Saturday. Uh, I wasn't preaching the next day, so I had some time. Um, Gloria, my wife, was uh, getting some errands done. And when she came back, she saw me glued to the TV watching uh, this show. Um, I don't know if anybody has seen what it is, but this is Indian Arranged Marriages. Uh, it was just uh, something that, that uh, uh, I was fixated on. And the reason I wanted to watch it is because it was so countercultural to me. Um, the people in this modern day and age would still have arranged marriages. Uh, and I started watching the first episode and it was just so intriguing. And when Gloria came home, she saw me fixed to the TV uh, with big eyes. And then she was like, what's going on? I said, hey, come, 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 come and join me. And we ended up binge watching the whole season uh, just on that day. And why it was so interesting? Because as we were looking at this and as people were looking at the different profiles of people to uh, get these arranged marriages done, um, they were looking at money, uh, beauty, family background, uh, education, whether a person is an introvert or an extrovert, what hobbies they have, what career they have, whether they are charming, whether they are well-spoken. And uh, to say that you could, you could really discover each participant and their families, members, what they truly valued. You could really see what, what they truly treasured. And in today's passage, we can discover the same. Uh, from the behavior, from the conversations we see in this passage, from the feelings that are captured here in the passage, and, and, and just what's going on in this wedding arrangement, we can also find out what people truly treasure. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at uh, three things. We're going to look at identifying your treasure, hunting down your treasure, and then discovering the real treasure. Let us start with uh, the first point identifying your treasure. So what we'll do in this passage is we will um, kind of do the same thing what they did in uh, the Indian arranged marriages. Uh, we will, I've created a profile for every single one of the characters. Uh, so just like the matchmaker, I'm, I'm a bit creating a profile and I'm going to introduce every character to you to see um, kind of what is it that they truly treasure. So let's start with the first character. And of course, the first character is Jacob. Uh, Jacob, um, well, what is it that we know about him? Well, we know uh, that he makes a deceivingly great uh, lentil stew. If you have read, read uh, Genesis just a bit before that, um, um, he cooks so well that it makes people want to sell their birthrights. Um, and probably he learned how to cook from his mother uh, because she also is this deceivingly great cook uh, as well. If you read Genesis, you will, you will find out that. We also know that he likes to chill indoors. Uh, in Genesis 25, it says his brother likes to go out and hunt while he likes to dwell within tents. So he's a bit of an introvert. Um, he's a bit of a mommy's boy. Uh, he's the mom's favorite, whereas the older brother or the, the, his twin brother was the father's favorite. And we also know he's fleeing from his brother. Um, he, uh, he stole his brother's blessing. Now, we also know that he's looking for a wife, uh, not a Canaanite uh, or a Hittite, because his parents are a bit racist, right? They said, you can have anybody, but as long as it's not a Canaanite or a Hittite. And we also know that he's looking for work in another country. So he's a migrant worker. That's what he is. He's somebody who's fleeing for whatever persecution he's receiving, and he's going to another country looking for a wife, and he's looking for a job, so he's a, looking for work, he's a migrant worker. Um, that's the background of Jacob. But what does he truly treasure? Where does his heart lie? What makes him tick? As we see the story unfold, as he flees from his home country, he finally comes to the land of his uncle and he sees Rachel and he's smitten by her. I mean, she checks all the boxes, right? She's beautiful. Um, and we'll explore that a bit more later when we get to Rachel. Uh, she's from the right pedigree. She's in the right family. And he's head over heels. And he really wants her badly. And you can just say, um, I, mean, I mean, how can I say that I know that he really wants her badly? Well, later we find out that he's willing to pay a really, really high price for her. Um, he's willing to work seven years for her. Now, to understand the culture back then, the rate for the down payment of a wife or the dowry uh, would be about 50 shekels. 
Um, and the average pay per month of somebody was about 1.5 shekels. So it's about 18 shekels a year. And take that times seven years, that's about 126 shekels for her. So it means he's willing to pay three times the price that anybody else would pay or give dowry for a wife. And also in verse 20 we read um, um, that he's really, really in love with her because it says, Jacob served seven years for her and they seemed but to him a few days because he loved her. So what does it tell us? He loves Rachel. That's what he is really about. Now the question is, is it love or is it lust? Well, I don't know. When he finishes his seven years, in verse 21 he says, Give me my wife that I might go into her, for my time is complete. I'm quite sure I wouldn't have said that to my father-in-law on my wedding day. Um, I wouldn't recommend anybody saying that to their father-in-laws on their wedding day. But it just shows how excited he was to finally have his wife. And he really believed that his life could change that when he finally would have Rachel. Imagine him fleeing from his home, looking for a new life. He's looking for a new hope and he believes that he would have all these things if he finally has Rachel. Then his life would be okay. His life would be okay. He would have all this. His life would be okay if he has his, well, let's call it trophy wife. So this is what he treasures. He treasures Rachel. Well, let's continue to the next character. And the next character is Laban or Laban, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I think I pronounce it differently all the time, so just excuse me if I do. Um, now here, I, I put a picture here of, of the Godfather, and I explain to you uh, guys why. Um, he's a patron. Um, he is a well-established businessman. He has two daughters, and he wants to get both daughters married. He has a good business, and he's an opportunist. Why do I say he's an opportunist? Because when he deals with Jacob, when, when Jacob offered to work for him, he was not just contented with the fact that Jacob wants to marry one of his daughters and is willing to work for seven years. He was not just contented with that, um, that somebody's willing to work so hard. No, he wanted to exploit Jacob. That's something actually that's still very common here in KL when we see migrant workers come and business owners trying to exploit them and squeeze every little penny out of them for their own business and make as much money out of them as they possibly can. Anyways, so Laban is an opportunist. Uh, he's trying to exploit Jacob. He's not content and he's the master deceiver. And we can see that in just the way he engages with Jacob. You can see he really, really knows how to con somebody and he does it by implying some form of guilt. You see, when he finally reveals Leah to Jacob in the story, Jacob says in verse 25, What is it that you have done to me? Did I not serve you uh, for Rachel? When then have you deceived, why then have you deceived me? You know what he says? Well, Laban answers this way, because it's custom and tradition. But the way he says it, you can see he really, really is trying to teach Jacob a lesson here. Because he says this, well, around here, in this area, in our country, it's not usual for the younger to get what the firstborn is supposed to have. Now that sounds familiar. Because Jacob took the blessing of his older brother. Jacob took as the younger what the older was supposed to have. And Laban knew that, and he knew how to just work Jacob and get another seven more years out of him. Because when Jacob heard this saying, uh, uh, heard him saying this, around here the younger doesn't get what the older gets, Jacob probably went, oh, he's talking about me. And he's not able to reply or say anything, but just submit. That's why I'm saying, Laban is like the godfather. He knows how to make an offer that nobody can refuse. But what is it that he treasures? I mean, it could be customs and tradition. He says it because around here, this is the way things are done. So maybe it's customs and traditions that he truly values. But maybe um, he, what he really desires most, uh, where his treasure lies, is maybe status. 
Um, maybe it's money, um, but he has money and he has status. So maybe it's, it's, it's duty. I'm the business owner, I'm the provider. I gotta make sure my daughters do the right thing and they end up with the right family. They get the right husband, uh, they have the right education. Maybe that's where his idolatry lies. Maybe that's where his treasure lies. That people will just follow his ways, his tradition and customs and uphold his status. Or maybe he just treasures himself because he didn't push his daughter into a loveless marriage for her sake. He did it for his own sake. Maybe he just wanted to get rid of the problem. Maybe he just wanted to check the boxes and say, okay, daughter's married, business expanded, money provided. Maybe he just values himself. And sometimes when we're looking at somebody really and truly treasures, it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, because usually it's a combination of things. It's a mix of things and it's not so clear. And we might have to look more detailed and ask more detailed questions of somebody to really find out. But with him, we don't have more information right now. So um, that's about all we have for Laban in this story. So what does he treasure? Probably status, probably himself, uh, probably just duty and honor. So that's Laban. Well, let's continue and look at the next character. Let's look at Rachel. Well, we know that she's the daughter of Laban uh, and uh, we know uh, some of her background. Um, we know that she's hardworking. Uh, she's got a career going on. She's a shepherdess. Uh, she's got, uh, uh, and she's very beautiful. I mean, she's extremely beautiful. That's what it says here in the passage. It says that she was beautiful in form and appearance. <laughs> When the Bible says that, it means that she had a pretty face and an attractive body. <laughs> That's what it says here. And trust me, the Bible was really blunt in saying that it's not just how pretty she is, but that she had a pretty body. That means she had sex appeal. That's what the Bible is trying to say is here. And the problem, though, about Rachel is that we find out that she's barren. Even though she marries, she's not able to have children. And in the story, that's why I included chapter 30, verse 1. She says, give me children or I die. So it really shows that that's what she treasures. That's where her treasure lies, to have children. She wants to have children and she can't have children. Well, at least in this episode. Um, and if you read through Genesis and continue the story, she eventually have children. But you got to think as times when you read through narratives, kind of like a TV show, like like episodes. Certain truths uh, are for a certain particular episode and then in the next episode everything twists around and there's some different truth and everything is shaken but for this episode she is barren and she cannot have children. So what's her idol? Maybe status uh, because back then being a woman not having children would lower your value, lower your status and she's not used to having it. I mean, she's the younger sister. She's the more beautiful one. She's the one who has a great career going on. She's probably the valedictorian, the one who graduated from Harvard. Uh, she is the, you know, the head cheerleader. She's the beautiful worship leader. She's the one who, rep I mean, at least that's at least what she represents. And suddenly she's barren. And she does not have children. And she rather die. So that's her treasure. Well, which brings us to the last character that we're going to focus on uh, today. And of course, uh, that's Leah. Now, um, what picture do you think I chose for Leah? Because as a male preaching here, putting down any female picture and saying that's the ugly one uh, might not be a good habit. Uh, it's just really difficult. And so I spoke to my wife and said, what do I do? She said, yeah, Massimo, just don't put any picture there. You know, for you as a guy to put down here as a picture of the ugly person uh, uh, would just be bad. But after researching and with my wife's help, we found a picture and here it is, I put down Ugly Betty. So it's not me who says that this lady is ugly. It's the TV show, it's called Ugly Betty, right? So it's self-proclaimed ugliness. It's not me saying that, all right? So um, anyways, let's go on. That's, that's Leah and she is also the daughter of, uh, of Laban. Uh, she's the older one um, and it says here, She's weak in her eyes. Now, why would I say that means ugly? Well, because the passage says Leah was weak in her eyes, and it, if it meant that she didn't have good vision, 
And the passage would have said, Leah was weak in her eyes, but Rachel had 20-20 vision. But it doesn't say that. It says, Leah was weak in her eyes, but Rachel was beautiful. That means that in comparison to the weak eyes lies beauty. That means that she was ugly or she was not beautiful. That's what the Bible is telling us here. So what's her background? Well, her background is one of rejection. Uh, she had been rejected, first of all, by her sister's beauty, being the older one, having the younger sister, uh, living in the shadows of the beauty of the more beautiful sister, uh, uh, constantly being rejected. Probably suitors came to the home, but they always only wanted uh, uh, Rachel. Uh, the matchmaker probably only found ways for Rachel to be married off, and never for her. But she's also probably rejected by her father. Uh, the fact that he has to put on a conniving scheme just to get her married is probably another kick in the face, right? That somebody has to scheme for you to cheat just to get you married. She has been rejected by her father. But of course, throughout the story, we also recognize that she's been rejected by her husband. He married both, but Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And Leah felt hated and rejected. Now, she was able to have children, but her treasure wasn't children. Being somebody who was rejected over and over and over again, what she truly treasures is to be loved by her husband. And it's so interesting that the two sisters both have what the other wants. Rachel has the love of the husband, but she wants children. Leah has children, but she wants the love of the husband. It seems that the grass is always greener on the other side, I guess. You always want what you do not have. But this is what she treasures. She treasures to be loved. That's where her heart is. That's what, thinks, what she thinks will make her life okay if her husband would just love her. So my question for you today, this morning, is where is your treasure? What do you value the most? And a, a good acronym for, for IDOL is Items, Duties, Others, and Longings. What is it that you treasure? Is it, is it, is it an item? Is it, is it a car, a, a house? Or, or is it duty that you are a mother, a businessman, a worship leader, a preacher, a provider, a teacher? Or I serve in this capacity, I'm the good daughter. I don't know what duty it is that you truly treasure, but is it a duty that defines who you are and defines all your life? Or maybe it's others. Maybe it's not being a child, but maybe it's your children, or maybe it's your husband, or maybe it's your boss. I mean, who do you idolize? Who do you treasure? Whose approval do you seek? Whose love do you seek? All longings. Maybe you don't have children and, and your longing is what you really uh, idolize or your treasure. It's like, I want to have a children. I want to be loved. I want to have that job. I want to get this promotion. What is it that you treasure? I mean, it's not bad to want a husband or to want your husband to love you. It's not bad to be a provider and a father and a mother. It's not bad to love your children. Actually, the Bible tells us to love a lot of things. The Bible tells us to love our children, love your parents, and the Bible tells you to be a provider. So it's not an inappropriate love that we're looking at. It's not an immoral love. It's not a sinful love that's the problem. It's disordered love. That's our problem. It's loving the wrong things, the wrong amounts. But of course, the question here is not, what do you love? The question is, what do you love the most? And to find out what that treasure might be, here are some questions you can ask yourself. Well, what do you think would change your life right now? What would rock your world? God, if I follow you, if I obey you, or God, I will follow you, I will obey you if, Whatever comes after the if is probably what you treasure most.
Now you might ask me, why is that so important, Massimo? Like you've been going through these profiles, analyzing all what people treasure as examples, and now you're asking us uh, um, about our treasures. Why, and why you're, you're going so deep and you, 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 you're asking so many questions about it. Why is this so important? Well, because Jesus says, where you place your treasure, your heart will also be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Whatever you treasure, where you place your treasure, there your heart will also go into that space. It means the trajectory of your life will be in the orientation towards the direction of the thing that you treasure. And that's what we're going to explore right now. Here with the second point. Hunting down your treasure. So we just read where you lay your treasure is where your heart is. Which means the focus of your life will be about pursuing and getting that treasure. When the Bible says heart, uh, it doesn't just mean what you love. It means the control center of your life. And it says that if your control center of your life is being controlled by the one thing that you treasure. Now, I, you might have heard about this before, but the, the human is probably made of five things. And I'm going to name some categories here. And if you really analyze them, they're going to actually be interdependent. They're going to overlap in many areas. And they're not mutually exclusive from one another. Uh, but if you would have to take a human and, and divide the person, we would divide the person between mind, will, body, gut, and heart. And as I said, you might be familiar with this concept, but um, when a human has, we talk about mind, the mind is the area that thinks, the will is the area that chooses, uh, the body is the area that does the action, uh, the gut is the area that feels, and the heart is what worships or loves. Now, and the Bible tells us in Proverbs, guard your heart with all vigilance, from, from it flows the spring of life. We means the heart is the control center of all the other things. And when Jesus says that wherever you lay your treasure, your, there your heart will also be, that means that there's something that controls the control center, and that's the treasure. And so here's how it goes. Whatever the heart loves, the will will choose, the mind will justify, the body will do, and the gut will feel good about that's why it's so important to ask the question, what's your treasure? Because it will become your goal in life. It will become your KPI. It becomes the measurement of your contentment. And we are all here urban dwellers. Uh, we all know about setting KPIs and setting goals and achieving things. We all know about uh, achieving things because we are mostly driven people. And we know how to pursue things and we will pursue our treasures. We have goals, we are, we are driven, um, there's a lot of striving going on in KL, a lot of pressing, a lot of accumulating, a lot of achieving. So in a way, we are all treasure hunters. However, every treasure hunt comes at a cost. Let's look at the story. Let's look at the costs every one of these characters had to bear to pursue their treasure. Well, Jacob was enslaved for 14 years. He gave 14 years just to be able to have his treasure. Uh, Laban, well, he deceived his family and he messed up his family through that. And if you continue reading the story, he eventually loses his family just in pursuit of his treasure. Uh, Rachel in the story, he says, she wants to die. She says, if she doesn't have children, she wants to die. And she's filled with envy of her sister. She gives her maids to sleep with her husband. And finally, in the passage, we read that it costs her husband to be angry with her. If you will continue reading Genesis onwards, eventually he says, he says am I God that I can give you children? I mean, the man who, who loved her is suddenly now angry with her. So it costs her, well, envy and an angry husband. Now, Leah is a bit tricky to see what it costs her uh, because 
it wasn't really her fault that she was pushed into a loveless marriage, but that's the price she's paying now. Uh, so she wants to have a husband who loves her, but uh, she's stuck in this loveless marriage and she's trying to earn her husband's love by having children and child after child after child. That's the cost that she's bearing. My question is, what is your treasure hunt? What is your pursuit of your treasure costing you? Are you enslaved at your job to make that promotion? Make that money, fulfill your duty, gain that respect or status? Are you so busy making sure your business grows that you are neglecting your family? Are you more concerned that your kids do the right thing and conform to what is expected that they don't feel loved? Are you pursuing your treasure so much that you are accepting those around you? What is your treasure hunt costing you? And is it worth it? Will the treasure live up to expectation? Will it really complete you, make you whole, and give you complete contentment? Well, let's look at the story. Let's look at Jacob. Seven years working hard, and finally it's time for him to get his prized possession. Finally, he's supposed to get his trophy wife. Finally, his life will be okay. Finally, all his hopes and dreams will be met. So he gets his bride and he has his wedding night. And after one week of celebration, he has his wedding night. And in that moment is probably the best night he ever had. But then in the way the, world, the story says it, it says this, but in the morning, behold, it was Leah. It was not what he thought he would receive. It was not what he thought was promised. It didn't measure up to his expectation. Now you might say, hey, he got conned. He was promised Rachel, so it's not that he had a false expectation and then that the thing he received did not really meet his expectation, but Let's look back to the story. Was he really promised Rachel? Did Laban really say, I will give you Rachel? If you look at the back text here, I look back at verse 19. It says this, Laban says, It is better that I give you to her than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Laban just said, it should be better if I give it to you. Didn't mean I'm going to give it to you. It's like me telling you, it's better for me to, let's say, give you a hundred bucks than to throw it in the trash. But that doesn't mean I'm going to give you a hundred bucks. It just means it's better for me to give it to you than to throw it in the trash. But he's just saying it's better for me to give you the, uh, uh, Rachel than to give it to any other man. But he wasn't planning to give it to any other man at that point of time. So he didn't really promise her. Jacob deceived himself. Of course he was slightly con. I'm not taking away from that. But he also deceived himself. He wanted Rachel so badly that he thought the seven years will get him Rachel, but it was only Leah. Because he was so consumed about getting his idol, and so consumed about getting his treasure, so consumed about getting his wife, that he deceived himself. And a lot of times, um, that's what we do too. We are so consumed with something that we ascribe a value and a worth to something, and we think that particular thing is making a promise that it never did. And we think it will fulfill us, but we deceive ourselves about those things. You see, Leah represents something here for all of us. It's the disappointment when the treasure doesn't measure up to the expectation. When it does not provide the contentment we thought it would. The job that you hope for would be everything but then you get into it and uh, you go to bed, you wake up, it's your first day and you go into work and it's not what you expected. You thought it was going to be Rachel, but it's Leah. The car you bought and you thought it's all you need and you drive it for a week and suddenly, behold, it's Leah. And we are always pursuing someone or something for ultimate meaning. 
and nothing and no one is ever big enough for that. The treasure you are pursuing is most likely a myth. You have probably conned yourself, deceived yourself in believing that it will give you ultimate worth or value. Like most treasure hunts, what you thought would change your life will probably just end up being an old, rusty little coin in a tiny little box. The problem is that all these little treasures are only as valuable as we make them to be. They are valuable because we hold them as value, as valuable. And as soon as we acquire them, as soon as we get them, we don't want to think, or we don't think they're as valuable anymore. And that's why we are not contented with them. <laughs> that's why we want more. We want another house, another car. We want a wife and then we want children. And when we get the children, we want grandchildren. We want more and more. It's never enough. And the reason is because all these things, they do not have intrinsic value. They don't have value of themselves. They're only as much worth as you make them to be. And that's why they will fail you. Your treasure hunt is not a pursuit of life, but it's a pathway to death. It's a setup for disappointment. It's apocalyptic romanticism. It's a love that leads to death. Your treasure will never satisfy, for it does not have the capacity to do so. You see, what you need, you need something that's of ultimate capacity, of ultimate worth, of ultimate value. And only God has that. God is the only one who has intrinsic value in himself. It's not about how much you value him or ascribe value to him. He has ultimate value and his value never runs out. His love never runs out. He's the only one who can continue giving and giving and giving. And when you think you have discovered him, you realize there's so much more to discover. And when you think that you have grasped his love, there's a greater love to be grasped. But we know that. You know that. I don't have to stand here in front of you and tell you. It's, it's not new news. We know it. But it's not the knowledge that matters. It's treasuring it that matters. It does not say where your thoughts are, there your heart will also be. It's not where your knowledge is, there your heart will also be. It doesn't say guard your mind with all vigilance, from, from it flows the spring of life. It says guard your heart. It is something to do with the heart. And even though we know this truth, the, the biggest gap is usually the distance between our heads and our hearts. So, so how do we go about this? Well, we have to discover the real treasure. And to do that, we have to look at Leah's story. It's when we look at Leah, we can see how God transformed her heart bit by bit. How she slowly discovers the treasure. And we can see the transformation in the naming of her kids. If you look at the last part of today's passage, it says this, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So Leah still hopes for her husband love, even though she's gotten a child, but her treasure is still a husband. And it says, in verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She's still focused on the fact that she's hated. Again, she conceived and bore a son. Now this time my husband will attach to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. God is giving her children after child after child and she's still going on about her husband. And then verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. 
Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Something changed. Suddenly she would praise the Lord. Well, what happened? Let's, let's look at it a bit more detailed. A, a, a few facts that we can learn from this. Well, first thing is she knew God and she spoke to him. Uh, she brought her desires to God. She called him Yahweh. It was the, the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. And she was bringing her real, honest, true, maybe not the most God-glorifying desires, but her real desires to God. God, I want to have my husband love me. And yes, you give me children, but I want my husband what she's not trying to do is hide her desires from God. She brings her desires to God. You know, so often in our prayers, we do this little pretentious, righteous, holy-sounding kind of prayers. Oh Lord, make me a more holy person. Oh Lord, make me more righteous. Oh Lord, you know, give me desires of your heart. But in reality, we have all these desires which are actually bothering us. And we are trying to suppress them rather than to bring them to God. Now, I'm not saying that all these, these prayers I mentioned are bad prayers. But a lot of times they're superficial because that's not really what's going on in our hearts. In a, prayer, in a, in a training on prayer that I attended, uh, the trainer said this. Imagine a, a, a beach ball. Uh, and the beach ball is your desires. And you're trying to take this beach ball and, and push it underwater. That's you suppressing your desires. And you're pushing it lower and lower and lower. And as so you're hoping to push your desires lower and lower, you hope that eventually as you push them down far enough, maybe God will not see them. Maybe they will go away. But the reality is, if you take a beach ball and you, you push it underwater, guess what's going to happen? As soon as you're not thinking about it, as soon as you don't have the strength anymore to keep it down, as soon as you lose control, it will pop up again. And God, no, and it's the same thing with our desires. As, as, as you're trying to suppress them, as soon as you're not thinking about it, they're going to pop up again. And God knows what your desires are. He sees you uh, for who you are. You can't hide those things from God. So you might as well take that beach ball and present it to him and say, Lord, this is me. This is what I truly desire. This is what I treasure. And you know what? From the story, we can see that God works with weak people like that. And we are weak people like that who don't have the right desires. We have our desires in all the wrong places. Our hearts are all disordered. We have disordered loves. But we have to bring them to God because that's how He slowly starts working with us. And He answers our prayers. Now, when I say He answers her prayers or our prayers, I don't mean that he's going to give us everything that we ask for. Uh, he doesn't give her what she wants. He doesn't. He doesn't give her the love of the husband. But he gives her what she needs. He gives her children. And as she's praying and talking to God, God is slowly giving her what she needs. Now, God does not necessarily always give you everything you want in the particular way you want it, but He will always give you the things you truly need. Let me put it differently. God will give you what you would ask for if you would know what God knows. If you would know what God knows, you will be asking for the things that God is giving you. He gives you what you truly need. And he slowly starts working in Leah, in her and through her. If you look at the text again, the first, uh, the first time she says, Because the Lord has seen me for the first time, Leah, the rejected one, feels seen. Look at the second son. Because the God has hurt me, she finally feels heard. For somebody who is rejected over and over again, finally God sees her, God hears her. At the end, she praises because she felt valued by God. He ascribed value 
to her. She felt seen, she felt heard, she felt valued. A value that she didn't even comprehend. A value that we don't even see completely unfold in this story. A value that we would have to go all the way to the New Testament to really see the value that she received because it was through her son Judah that King David will come, that Solomon will come, and the lineage of kings will come, and Jesus would come. It was through her line that Jesus, the Son of God, would be born, the Savior of the world. I mean, what greater honor, what greater worth, what greater value to give to somebody. She felt value because she received value from God. He gave her the greatest honor. He ascribed to her the greatest value in that time of culture that one could have, to have children. And that's what changed her heart. It's what rightly ordered her heart. She discovered that God loves her that God values her, that she is the true treasure and the greatest treasure of them all treasures her. And that's the key, you see. It's not about attaining your treasure. It's about your treasure treasuring you. It's not about getting the job, right? Once you have the job, you want to see the paycheck that comes with that job, that ascribes value to you. It's about your treasure treasuring you. It's not about having that husband, but it's about your husband looking into your eyes and saying, I love you. It's about your treasure treasuring you. It's not about having those children, but having those little children run to you when you walk through the door and embracing you because it's about your treasure treasuring you. It's about discovering that you are a treasure. And when your treasure treasures you, then you feel whole and content. And here we see the greatest treasure of them all. The only one with intrinsic value, God Almighty, treasuring her. Somebody of ultimate worth, of ultimate value, the only one who will never fail, saying, Leah, I see you, I hear you, I treasure you. Now Jesus, in one of his parables, teaches a very important kingdom value. It's a kingdom principle. It's a gospel ethic. And he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up in his joy. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who upon finding one pearl of great value went out and sold all that he had and bought it. Now Jesus is talking about a kingdom principle here. And a kingdom principle is not a principle or a kingdom value because you must do it. That does not make it a kingdom value. It's not because it's something the king expects of you. No, it's a kingdom value because it's what the king has already done for you. You are that hidden treasure. You are the pearl of great price. And Jesus saw you and treasured you and he went on the greatest treasure hunt ever. He left heavens and what cost he bore. He came at a great cost, his treasure hunt. He was captured and enslaved. He was beaten, mocked, and scorned. He was rejected over and over and over again by his friends, by his family, and ultimately on the cross by his father. He says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And he paid the greatest price. He gave his life for you. It's the greatest act of Apocalyptic romanticism is not a love that leads to death, but a death that demonstrates love. Because he was rejected, you can be accepted. Because he was enslaved, you can be free. Because he gave his life and demonstrated his, he demonstrated his love for you. His love beyond anything you can imagine. You are the pearl of great price. You are the hidden treasure. And to the degree 
that you see him treasure you, to that degree you will treasure him. That's what changes your heart. That's what bridges the knowledge in your mind to something you can experience and treasure in your heart. Realizing that you don't have to go and get God, but that God went out and got you because he values you. Leah felt valued and treasured because God gave her sons. God treasures you because he gave you his only son. And to the degree you see his love for you through Christ crucified on the cross, to that degree you will be like Leah and you will say, praise be to God. It will rightly order your heart. It will change the trajectory of your life. It will make you feel whole and complete and content. It will be what drives you and sustains you. It will be become the greatest treasure hunt of your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that we treasure so many things aside of you. And Father, it's not just that we love things, but we love those things and we make them ultimate things and we often love them more than you. Father, would you show us what those things are? Father, help us see the costs. Let us see the destruction of the treasure hunts. And Father, help us to evaluate whether it's worth it it at all. Father, beyond all and above all things, help us see Christ crucified on the cross. Help us see that you truly treasure us. Help us reflect on the gospel. Help us meditate on the good news that you went and pursued us so that we can respond in praise. And Father, we know that nothing can measure up. Nothing can make us righteous. Nothing can make us whole. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.